In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. A long time ago, when I was about 12 years old, I was taking Aramaic classes with Father Michael at St. Peter's before there was even an educational center in those old classrooms. And I don't know how this came up, but he told us a story about uh, interaction he had with a Protestant. And as many of you might know, it's popular in Protestant circles to accuse Catholics of worshiping images and statues. Obviously, that's not true. We don't do that. But to demonstrate that point, Father Michael did something funny with this Protestant. He asked the guy, do you have any pictures of loved ones in your wallet? And so the guy said, yes, I do. And Father Michael said, okay, can I see one? And this guy took out a picture of his mom. And Father Michael took the picture and threw it on the ground. Uh, He didn't step on it or anything like that because that would have been proving the point maybe too much, but uh, the Protestant guy was frustrated, reasonably so. Why did you throw the picture of my mom on the ground? That's my mom. And Father Michael answered him, the same amount of frustration you just felt by me putting this picture on the ground, that's how much we venerate these pictures. That's how much we venerate these images of these figures, not worshiping them, but honoring the contribution they've made to God's plan of salvation, honoring their example of holiness. So the point was made. And I think all of us can appreciate how there are various images, not only of saints that we venerate in our churches and our church buildings, but also of loved ones that we might hang up at home, set as the background on our phones, hang up in our office or something like that. There's a certain value that's reasonable to place on images. But at the same time, the image is not that person. It's a kind of weird thing that we don't really think about often. In his commentary on the book of Genesis, this very brilliant Jewish scholar says, an image is very interesting because it has a certain problem to it. It both is and is not what it represents. So this becomes even more interesting when we apply it to ourselves. Because as many of us might know from reading the book of Genesis, we're created in the image and likeness of God. So we both are and are not like God. How do we answer this problem? How do we solve this problem? Speaking of Genesis, we can look at the hierarchy of creation. There's a certain order of creation. Again, as we know from reading Genesis, creation is done through a pattern of what the author calls days. And there's five days, and on the sixth day, man is brought forth into creation, and there's nothing else brought forth into creation after that. There's only the seventh day, and that day God blesses it and sanctifies it. And it's made a holy day, and it's a day of rest. So then man is left to ask himself to understand what his role is, to understand what his reality is. What do I do? 
Do I become like the other five days of creation that are before me? Or do I look to the seventh day and the rest of the seventh day and the holiness of the seventh day? Not that the things created on the previous five days are bad. It's just that maybe a man is meant to become something more. Maybe a man is meant to look ahead of him. Maybe there's a pattern of creation and things happen in a certain way where things get a little bit more independent as the days go. But independent doesn't mean complete. Man must look to the seventh day for his completion. Man must look to the seventh day to be an image of not what he's supposed to be, but who he's supposed to be. And a lot, there's a lot of discussion about what is the rest of God on the seventh day? How does God rest? What does that mean? What does it mean that the seventh day is sanctified or blessed by God? And if you study the Bible, if you study the history of the Israelites, if you study how everything is fulfilled in Christ and the New Testament, you'll come to realize that entering into the rest on the seventh day for us means preserving the law and the commandments of God. Entering into the rest of the seventh day is entering into a covenant with God. It's becoming part of the family of God. It's becoming an image of God. So that is what man is supposed to look to the seventh day for. That is how man preserves himself as an image of God. How is that image of God ruined? When man looks backward. When man chooses what's less. When man takes what's good and makes it bad. We ruin our image and likeness of God that we're created in when we sin. That is what stains that image. That is what ruins the beauty of that image. Now what does any of this have to do with the gospel we just read? In the letter to the Hebrews, the author says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In the gospel we heard today, we have the most, one of the most epic interactions between any two characters we can ever hope to read about, and that is between Christ and Satan. What does Christ show us? He shows us the depth of his love. He enters the drama of the human being, the drama of sin that threatens every human being. To do what? To just defeat temptation? To just have this interaction with Satan and say no to him? No. Christ didn't have to do any of that. Christ didn't have to prove that he could beat Satan in this specific way. But Christ enters into the human drama of sin to lift humanity up to something that it cannot reach on its own. And that is holiness. That is communion with God. It comes from God's grace. The ability to do this comes from God's grace. And why does God give us this grace? Why does God give us any grace at all, actually? That's how precious our image is. We are created in his image and likeness. And God loves this image so much that he enters into the drama of humanity to give it the chance to preserve that image, to give it the chance to keep that image beautiful, 
to give it, to give it the chance to keep that image unstained, to give us the hope that we will one day be such beautiful images that we can decorate the walls of his eternal kingdom. What a beautiful thought. What a magnificent love. When you put it that way, Lent is not only a diet. Lent is not only some promises that we make ourselves. No. Lent is a battle to enter into communion with our Heavenly Father. In fact, when you look at the prayers of our Chaldean liturgy throughout these next seven weeks, that is exactly how it's reflected, as a spiritual battle with the evil one. Again, a spiritual battle to preserve this image of holiness. The church calls us to have to embrace certain tools throughout this battle, three in particular, to increase our fasting, to increase our prayer, and to increase the giving of alms. Why these three things? Of course, there's, no, there's not just a coincidence to them. The church in her wisdom calls us to these things. Fasting to separate ourselves from disordered desires of the flesh and the way Christ overcame that temptation. Prayer to increase our humility because as we come before God, it takes humility to admit and to recognize and to embrace that he is the author of life, that he is the master of the universe. And doing this not only takes humility, but increases our virtue of humility as we go. And the giving of alms to separate ourselves from disordered attachment to material things. A disordered attachment to power. A disordered attachment to things that don't belong to us in the first place. And yes, it takes the giving of our time and our money. And those are great things and should be practiced throughout Lent. But you know what's more radical than just giving time and money? Giving yourself to other people. So the practice of these three things, brothers and sisters, is what we need in this spiritual battle, is what we need to become sons and daughters of God, is what we need to become a new Adam. If you'll notice, it's in the wilderness that reconciliation and peace happens between humanity and God. Whereas in the garden, Adam ruined everything. Adam turned from God and turned toward himself and brought sin into the world. This victory lies in conquering temptation. It lies in the humility and obedience and love that Christ showed us first, as we saw in this gospel passage today. That is how to preserve ourselves in the image of God. That is how we can fight this fight for the next seven weeks, this spiritual fight, and share in the ultimate victory that matters more than any victory, which is the victory of the resurrection. Amen.